Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com, and if you want to contact me, uh, use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at obsessiveviewer, send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. Also, if you feel in the giving mood, I just recently put a donate button on anthologypod.com. Basically, I have a separate checking account where all of my podcasting and website fees come directly out of. So any donations made using that donate button goes directly directly into that account and will help pay the fees to keep the podcast running. It can also help me pay for Twilight Zone and Rod Zerler. It... <laughs> It can also help me pay for Twilight Zone and Rod Serling books and DVD releases of future series I plan to cover, such as Tales of Tomorrow, Science Fiction Theater, One Step Beyond. And finally, if you're in the Indianapolis area, my friends and I at The Obsessive Viewer are hosting an event on October 14th. It's called Shocktober in Irvington, and it's a one-night event screening of short horror films from local filmmakers. We rent out a small theater, screen the short films, interview the filmmakers, raffle off DVDs, Blu-rays, gift cards to local businesses. It's a lot of fun, and it's our third year doing it, and all the proceeds go directly to the Irvington uh, Historical Society, which, for those who don't know, for those that aren't near Indianapolis, um, Irvington is this really nice little little area to the east of Indianapolis that is is really great really nice uh, a nice piece of culture in in Indianapolis and every October they do this really great um, Halloween festival thing it's it's really a great great place so we're really happy to um, help contribute to it in our own small way and as a special bonus for anthology listeners, uh, you can actually get $1 off the price of admission to Shocktober and Irvington by using the promo code PODCAST2 when you buy your tickets. Uh, that's PODCAST and the number 2. Um, you can do that on shocktoberandirvington.com. And also, if you can't make it and but you still want to donate to the Historical Society, we have a separate donate button on the Eventbrite page where you buy tickets. So anyway, more information as well as a link to buy the tickets or make a donation can be found at shocktoberinirvington.com. 
Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. It's the 22nd episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on March 4th, 1960 on CBS. And I have a pretty special bonus review this week. Um, I'm actually going to be reviewing the episode of the 2002 Twilight Zone revival that uh, was a remake of this episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, which, if you haven't seen it, that episode of the 2002 Twilight Zone is available on YouTube as of this recording in its entirety. You can find a link to that in the show notes of this episode or last week's episode of Anthology. So you can go to anthologypod.com slash 017 uh, for a link to that uh, to that YouTube video of what's called The Monsters Are On Maple Street in the 2002 Twilight Zone show. But first, I have some a couple of announcements and some listener email to get through um, before we get into the review of the episode. So really, my only announcement for the week actually is uh, it was announced this week that uh, the new season of Black Mirror, which is such a great, great um, technophobic uh, sci-fi anthology series that has garnered a lot of comparisons to the twilight zone um anyway so netflix is going to be releasing the first six of the new episodes of black mirror on october 21st on netflix and i think um time permitting um this is still kind of up in the air but i think what i might do in the lead up to black mirror being released on netflix i think i might do bonus reviews of each episode of black mirror that's in existence thus far. Um, these will be in addition to the episodes covering the twilight zone. So it's not going to be like, I'm taking a break from the twilight zone to cover black mirror. Um, so I think I might do that. I don't know if they'll be as extensive as these episodes of, um, anthology. I don't know if I'll go into casting crew and all that, but, um, it'll be fun to, to talk about in addition to twilight zone. So let me know what you think of that. If that's a good idea or if, or if, you'll, uh, you'll skip them, which I mean, I guess I'll know once the downloads hit, but anyway, um, so that's coming October 21st and I am so, so excited about it. Okay. So I actually have quite a bit of listener email to get through, um, in this episode. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right into them. Uh, so first up is, um, uh, if you guys remember, uh, several weeks ago, I referenced that, uh, uh, Brandon Yotter is, was going to be emailing about, uh, the episode I, in which I reviewed what you need. Um, because I talked to him, I had talked to him at, uh, Indie PopCon, uh, back in June and, uh, he, he got back to me. So, uh, I'll go ahead and read his email and here we go. Hey, Matt. Thanks for the shout out slash reminder on the show. We're really looking forward to Shocktober and I'm psyched about what we're working on for it. I've had a lot of fun listening to Anthology and I never realized how much of the Twilight Zone, at least to this point, was adapted from Richard Matheson's stories. One of my favorite one of my favorites of his adaptations is The Last Man on Earth starring Vincent Price. In my opinion, it is the best of the adaptations of his story, I Am Legend, although saying anything is better than the Will Smith version or the slow-moving Omega Man with Charlton Heston isn't really a surprise. I think it would make a great bonus review for a future Matheson episode. I also wanted to bring up something that you mentioned in Episode 7 when you were talking about what you need. 
As you recall, the episode opens with Padat at a bar giving people seemingly random items that they will need in the near future. He gave the woman a bottle of cleaner, and you said that you were disappointed that Padat gave her something that would help Lefty instead of something that would help her. As I was watching it, I saw I saw a look between Lefty and the woman that made me assume they were going to get together. In 1959, it also might have been thought that, that, that what a woman in her mid-twenties sitting in a bar by herself needed was to get married and start a family. I might have taken too much from the look that she shared with Lefty when she offered up the bottle, but I got the sense that Padat gave her an item that would bring her together with her future love. Again, I might have taken it the wrong way, but assuming that Padat does only give people what they need, then this is the only way that I can reconcile what she got when uh that she got what she needed thanks again for the shout out i'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts thanks brandon yotter from indianapolis and uh he uh, first of all uh definitely check out brandon's work at billionbrandon.com it's a great web series that um they do where they portray um versions of themselves who who let movies that they watch influence their everyday life. So they see kick-ass and they think, Oh, I want to be a superhero. So they do some wacky antics in that vein. Uh, check that out at Billy and and also check out their work at Shocktober and Irvington on October 14th. Can't wait to see what they do. They always have really great, really great work, um, there and it makes us look good. <laughs> uh, okay. So anyway, thanks Brandon. Uh, for the email and uh, to your point about what you need, I just rewatched it before recording this and yeah, I, I can definitely see that being the intention. Um, I, I do think we, we may be reading just a tiny bit into it, but it really isn't a stretch to imagine that that was intentional. Um, in retrospect, I think it would have, I, I don't know. I think it would have been cool if Pidot gave lefty two tickets to kind of really sell that point. Um, but either way, she, I mean, she definitely livens up when she's talking to Lefty compared to when Padat gives her the cleaning solution. She's kind of sitting there morose and, and, you know, swirling her drink and looking like she has nothing really to, to, to not necessarily live for, but she's got nothing, nothing going on in her life and Padat giving her the cleaning solution. And then she, her using the cleaning solution as, as super fifties as it is, um, definitely, uh, definitely livens her up and, and gives her what looks like a sense of purpose. So I think you might be, I think you might be right on the money with that. Um, and yeah, it is definitely indicative of the time. Um, yeah, thanks for writing in again. And, uh, once again, guys, uh, you can buy tickets for Shocktober in Irvington, which Brandon will be, Brandon and his team will be submitting a short film for. Um, and again, you can use the promo code podcast two to get a $1 discount on the price of admission just for anthology podcast listeners. Okay. So next up is the first of a few emails from, uh, listener Greg, who for context, this episode, I'm recording it this is the first episode I'm recording since I recorded like three episodes in one go, um, a few weeks ago. So the emails have kind of piled up. I might, I might be doing that again next weekend. I might be recording three episodes in one go. So what I might do is if the emails pile up again like this, I may just release a separate, uh, mailbag episode, just talking about the emails I got. So anyway, um, in his first email, Greg writes, uh, the case of Mr. Pelham, 
from Alfred Hitchcock Presents would pair pretty well with Mirror Image since they both deal with doppelgangers. And unfortunately, when I got this email, I had already recorded my episode about Mirror Image. And, um, but I went ahead and watched this episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, um, for this, uh, after receiving this email. So I'm going to basically run through, uh, my quick thoughts on this episode of Alfred Hitchcock presents, which I've been watching that show a little bit recently and I, I'm really liking it. I mean, I love, I love Hitchcock and his intros to these episodes are so pleasant. Like, like he's got such, such this dry presence, but he seems he seems just such like such a pleasant guy. I, I really, I really dig his intros. So anyway, so this episode is, um, structurally it reminded me a lot of perchance to dream. It's uh, about a guy who is kind of speaking to his doctor about these bizarre things that have been happening to him. So structurally it reminds me a lot of perchance to dream and it plays with a lot of the same things as, as mirror image. It's about the guy who is suddenly or, uh, s- slowly realizing that there is another person who is impersonating him and, um, kind of taking over his life in, in a way. And once again, I, I just think the thought of losing your sanity and being put in a position where you either don't know what's going on or you're questioning your memory of things. Um, like you're like the idea that you're not remembering things that people say you did is just such a, such a really strong and sympathetic premise. And it's absolutely frightening to me. Um, in this particular episode, which is available on, uh, Netflix, it's season one, episode 10 of hit Alfred Hitchcock presents. It's available on, um, Netflix and, um, Hulu, which Netflix for some reason only has the first season and Hulu has, I believe all of them. So anyway, this particular episode is available on both. And there's something at the end that the main character does to kind of, to get an upper hand, um, against his, uh, doppelganger that I won't give it away or anything, but I absolutely, I, I loved that inclusion into the, into the story. I, I really liked how it was tied up at the end. Um, yeah, so I, so I really, I really enjoyed that. And thank you, Greg, for the recommendation. Next up, uh, is another email from Greg. He writes, cool review of Elegy. I haven't read the short story Elegy is based on myself, though I do have a collection of Mr. Beaumont's short stories, which includes The Howling Man, the basis for the celebrated season two episode of the same name I imagine you'll be reviewing in the coming months. And I'm going to break in here and just say I'm really excited to see more of Beaumont's contributions to The Twilight Zone. His dark and somewhat cynical eye is really interesting in the context of The, the Twilight Zone. And it's it's interest, interesting in contrast to um, to Serling's somewhat, somewhat also cynical but kind of um, uh, optimistic view. Um, his, his representation of what, what humans... Ke- can turn into if we don't um his more cautionary tales rather than uh than beaumont he seems more of a more just outright dark and cynical which both work really well in this context so anyway back to greg's email um he writes what i love about elegy and mirror image is how unconcerned they are about coughing up an overt message of any kind a message after all might comfort the viewer and still a certain smug superiority 
Not a chance with these episodes. They have no intention of letting the viewer off the hook that easily. A philosophy philosophy class could have a field day unpacking these episodes. They're unsettling in the Lynchian sense that their eerie surfaces are only the beginning. That beneath empty bus stations and frozen figures dotting Main Street USA is fate, a laughing fate, a practical jokester with a smile that's stretched across the stars, as Mr. Serling says in Elegy's outro. If any certainty in life exists, these episodes seem to be suggesting it's that at any time, in any place, we are all potential candidates for the butt of a cosmic joke perpetuated by unknowable forces who regard us with all the pity we reserve for the occupants of ant hills and undersides of rocks. And that, <laughs> that is just, I'm, I'm going to uh, break in here again. That is just beautifully said. And I, I like that element in these episodes. And I, I just love when things happen to characters that are so far out of the, con- the character's control. Um, the same kind of thing with, say, the four of us are dying and many other Twilight Zone episodes, I'm sure. It's just something I'm really loving about this show. Uh, back to the email, Greg writes, I do agree that the astronauts in Elegy are pretty one-dimensional and bland. I think, though, that's intentional. These astronauts are emblematic of the stiff upper types, a la Buck Rogers, who people imagined flooded the space program in the 50s. We're not meant to get to know them. We're only meant to know with a single glance how representative they are of the best and the brightest that America has to offer, and up to any challenge the great unknown devises. So it's deeply troubling and horrific when the unknown comes in the guise of a pear-shaped old codger, Wickwire, who seems about as removed from Patrick Bateman as Pinochle, is from Pokemon Go. And yet, our amiable fart murders our heroes and then affords them a permanent place in a macabre Disneyland exclusively designed, exclusively destined to make manifest the dreams of those who've stopped dreaming. Because human nature, as Wickwire sees it, precludes Homo sapiens from perpetuating peace until they're at peace permanently. And that final image of Wickwire dusting our heroes as corpses while that goofy music plays is just so wrong. Good episode. And I, I love Greg's take on Elegy, and that's a really great point about the astronauts being a symbol for people's perspective of those in the space program at the time. Uh, at the time. Uh, that's a really good take on it. And finally, uh, Greg emailed about uh, Mirror Image with his take on it, and I'll run through that here now. Uh, Greg writes, How about the invasion of the body snatchers angle? Millicent and Paul could be the only characters in Mirror Image from our world. Everyone else, the ticket agent, the cleaning lady, the police, even the old sleeping couple Millicent interrupts in the beginning, have already been replaced. It would explain the dismissiveness and, in some cases, utter hostility they show Millicent. They and Millicent's double are a part of the same grand scheme. What if what their end goal entails, Mr. Serling tantalizingly leaves up to us? Perhaps Millicent is right that our world and another have converged and the only way an occupant from this world can live is move us out. I'm sure all the bus station occupants mirrored Millicent's increasingly harried state when their time came. And like Millicent, their ravings about parallel worlds or whatever theories they have or they had of what was happening to them sent them on a one-way ride to the funny farm. Uh, Can you imagine Millicent's surprise when she discovers the occupant of the padded cell next to her is uh, the ticket agent? 
that and that he's an infinitely more sympathetic character than the brusque SOB she ran afoul of. Or maybe Mirror Image is a case of folie adieu, a man is shared by two. Millicent's stories about parallel planes and doubles so unsettled Paul that he started seeing things, like his bag stolen by someone who looks just like him. As a dreamy, experimental mood piece, I think this one works like gangbusters. Okay, thank you, Greg, so much for that. And uh, I just want to say, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is having the opportunity having the opportunity of uh, to have people far smarter than I am <laughs> help me understand the things that in twilight zone that i that i didn't connect with um <laughs> uh seriously though i i i think the notion that millicent and paul are the only two normal people in this universe is freaking brilliant and it's now my official headcanon for the episode um Rewatching the episode with this theory in mind makes it so much more digestible to me, um, especially when Paul speaks to the ticket agent uh, when he's after he tells Millicent that he has a friend that they that can drive them where they need to go. Um, he goes up to the ticket agent and they're talking and you can almost imagine that the ticket agent is purposely convincing Paul to call the police to have her taken away and is is subtly just influencing his perspective of what's going on and kind of giving him that push um and that reinforcement that millicent is indeed crazy and it isn't anything weird going on um and that idea that imagery uh that uh, that idea of millicent being greeted by people she met at the bus station when she gets to an asylum would have made for a really fantastic ending in my opinion um and i also like greg's uh fully adieu theory um, as well. It gives Millicent's descent to madness, this contagious feel. And I mean, that just, that just puts the entire episode into a much like a, a more frightening category than it is, um, without that, uh, context to it. So I, I really like those, um, those two theories and I really appreciate it, Greg. Um, I can definitely see myself warming up to this episode. The more I think about it or the more I think about it and the more I watch it, um, also, I did consider making Invasion of the Body Snatchers my bonus review for the episode, and uh, I kind of wish I would have. Um, nothing against Journey to the Unknown, but I mean, it would have given me an interesting excuse to rewatch Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but oh well. Uh, thanks again for all the emails, Greg, um, and, and thanks to Brandon for emailing in. Once again, you guys can email me at any time. Um, <laughs> Uh, with your thoughts on any past, present, or future episodes at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And uh, hats off to Greg, too, because it's awesome, because I'll post, I'll post the episode on Sunday, uh, Sunday night, and then, like, by the time I wake up Monday morning, like, sometimes I'll have an email, um, usually from Greg, and it's like, that's that's awesome. I love that. So I don't know if Greg works nights or something. I can sympathize with him if he does. But, um, but yeah, so I appreciate that. Okay, so now we've come to the part of the episode uh, where I am going to review The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, as usual, I'm going to start with an episode summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Sakri. And um, once again, the, this this review and the, the plot summary and review are going to be completely spoiler heavy. So if you haven't seen the episode yet, please go watch it. It's available on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon prime, all that. So here we go. Uh, the monsters are due on maple street. 
After what is first taken to be a meteor speeds overhead, Maple Street experiences a total power failure. Appliances, telephones, even cars. Pete Van Horn sets off sets off on foot to find out the cause, but Tommy, a young reader of sci-fi, says he knows human-looking aliens have infiltrated Maple Street. At first, this is laughed off, but when Mr. Goodman's car inexplicably starts up for a few seconds, suspicion falls on him. Bolstered by the fact that a neighbor has been seen has seen him looking up at the stars late at night. As evening falls, Steve Brand tries to get others to remain calm, but when a mysterious figure walks toward them in the dark, panic breaks out. Charlie Farnsworth grabs a neighbor's rifle and fires, killing the menace, who turns out to be the returning Pete Van Horn. Madness prevails. Charlie is accused of being the alien, then Tommy, as the lights of various houses flash on and off full-scale rioting begins from nearby two aliens watch these events unfold one explains to the other that by manipulating electricity it is easy to turn neighbor against neighbor maple street is typical and only the beginning okay so i'm going to start as usual with my talent rundown of the episode uh this episode stars claude akins as steve brand um he, this was his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. We'll next see him in season three's The Little People. Um, he was also in an episode of the show Erie, Indiana in 1992. Um, and just as an aside, my memory of that show is that I, I remember being a fun X-Files for kids type of show. Um, although I must've seen it like in reruns or, or something, uh, because it actually premiered two years before the X-Files, uh, began. So Anyway, uh, I, I, I dug that show. It was, it was fun, especially for a kid living in Indiana. Or at that point, I didn't really live in Indiana. When did I watch the show? Huh. Yeah, I must have seen reruns in like 96 or something because I'd live in... I moved to Indiana in 96. Anyway, um, this episode also stars Barry Atwater as Les Goodman, um, which I'll, I'll get to that in the review, I'm sure, but I'll just say it now. Les Goodman, that, that's, such a, that's such a unique name. Um, for an episode where his character is, uh, is, is, uh, people suspect his character of being a less than good man, less, less good man. Anyway, Barry Atwater, this is his only episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, he did, however, appear in two episodes of One Step Beyond, um, 1959's episode titled The Riddle, and he played Abraham Lincoln in 1960's episode The Day the World Wept, Wept, The Lincoln Story which I believe is about Lincoln having a, uh, a dream, um, predicting his, his assassination. Um, anyway, so Barry Atwater also appeared in one episode of the outer limits, 1963's Corpus earthling. And finally, he was also in two episodes of night gallery. He appeared in the pilot episode and in 1973's the doll of death. Um, and unfortunately he, he died in 1978 also in this episode is Jack Weston as Charlie Farnsworth. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, next we'll see him is in season four's episode, The Bard. And it's worth mentioning his first acting credit is for an episode of the show Out There, which was one of the first adult-oriented sci-fi anthology series. Um, it ran for 12 episodes from 1951 to 1952. 1952. Um, I don't know if it's available anywhere, unfortunately. Um, I, I, I looked 
quite a bit and I, I can't find it anywhere. So I think it, I think that might be lost, but, um, that's kind of an interesting anecdote, I guess. Um, appearing as Tommy in this episode is Jan Hanslick. Um, this is his only Twilight Zone episode and he only has one other acting credit, um, which is 1958's Anti-Mame or Mamie. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, he actually wound up quitting acting to become a successful lawyer. Um, he became a specialist in white collar crime and was chosen to chair the American Bar Association's National White Collar Crime Committee in October of 2000. And writer for this episode is Rod Serling. And it's obvious that this episode comes after so many, so many people in Hollywood were blacklisted and it's, it's in an era of, um, this cold war era of fear mongering and McCarthyism. And, and it's, it comes through so incredibly, it's such an incredibly powerful statement about, uh, this human, compulsion to find a scapegoat or to to cast suspicions upon your uh, like people you know it's it's such a powerful powerful episode and i'll get to that when i get to my review but it's just you can tell just how much rod serling this this episode mattered to rod serling when he wrote it i mean it's such such an impeccable script and something that resonates so much um, even today, it's it's a really almost sad commentary on humanity. But I think that, like I said when I was referencing Charles Beaumont's work, um, it's kind of Rod Serling has this has this way of showing the darkest corners of humanity um, in the show so far. Um, but he has it with this hint of hopefulness or, or this, he has the, he spins these stories as cautionary tales so that more that humanity can evolve from it and, and learn from it to, to better itself. And, um, this episode is just, is just incredible at that. Um, director for this episode is, uh, Ronald Winston. This is his first of three Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, next we'll see if his is, uh, in a few weeks actually, or in about a month or so, um, his, the episode, The Big Tall Wish. And his final episode will be in season five, uh, Stopover, Stopover in a Quiet Town, which actually reuses the Maple Street set. Um, he also directed one episode of Way Out, which was a sci-fi horror anthology series hosted by Roald Dahl. Um, he died in 1973 at the age of 40. So, okay, so now now that we've run through the talent, here's my feelings as a first-time viewer of the Twilight Zone's episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, and before I get to it, I just want to say that before I watched it, um, <laughs> I had no idea what it was about, except that it had to do with a neighborhood, um, its title is one of those titles that I was well aware of before I started the series. It was one of those iconic Twilight Zone titles that I heard all the time. Uh, but for some reason, I just, I never knew the plot of it. So, um, having said that, just diving into this episode was just such a treat because I was discovering it for the first time and it was uh, just, just incredible. Such an such an amazing, powerful episode. I, I loved every second of it and I'll dig into my thoughts on it. So my first note on here is that 
the kid, Tommy, is creepy. Um, and I say that because he speaks with such confidence about the aliens. Like it, it was, it was a unique experience because when he's talking to, uh, the adults about, about the, um, aliens and, and the sci-fi books he reads, like, it made me wonder like immediately, like, why does he think that? Or, or what, what does he know that the others don't? And why does he know it? And, when I realized that it's just strictly because he read it in, in comic books and, and he's a sci-fi fan and that's the only basis for it. Um, it made the adults, their reaction to it and the way that they run with it. So, so incredible to me. Like, I love that everything in this episode is kicked off by a child's imagination and, and I feel like it just really punctuates the tragedy that occurs on Maple Street just wonderfully. And it just really reinforces the statement that we as people can't succumb to this, to irrational fear or, or expanding upon just really baseless accusations and claims and just fall into this fear-mongering crowd. I think that that is such, such an amazing an amazing uh, lesson to be taught from this episode and an amazingly and tragically, I, I don't want to say prescient because, because it's something that just comes through. Um, it's a cyclical thing. I'll get to that when I get after my, my thoughts on the episode, but it's just, it's such a powerful statement. It's such a powerful, powerful depiction of a lesson in this episode. I, I love it. I'll speak more to that later in my review, but it's just it blew me away, um, and continues to as I as I've seen this several several times. But despite the kid, despite Tommy being kind of creepy and uh, and and speaking about that, I I liked how they stayed rational um, in the beginning, and I feel like it really upped the suspense. Um, it's not immediately a terrifying experience. Um, it's more an inconvenience and then a mystery and then it turns to terror. And I guess I should have said earlier and I apologize for jumping back, but I love the, I love the idyllic music that plays in the opening scene of this episode. Um, the set and in the music, they both just set up Maple Street as every town USA. Uh, Serling mentions it's Maple Street USA and it just brings us into the story so wonderfully and so, so immediately because we see like, yes, this is the, this is the idyllic American town. Um, this is the idyllic American neighborhood. And that just brings us right into it. It's, it just brings us right into the story. And I, I absolutely loved it. Um, so going back to, to Tommy though, I just want to mention just really briefly that something about the way that Tommy talks bothered me. Um, it's uh it's not it's not his kind of squeaky tone or anything like that it's just it's the mannerisms it's it's that his i guess it's that his mouth never seems to close completely um to me and the, i don't know that kind of i don't know that kind of rubbed me the wrong way i I, can't, I don't know how else to describe it um so anyway so after after he uh tells tells the adults about the sci-fi stories the aliens and, and the stories he reads um like i said i love that they stay rational in the beginning about it um steve is steve 
uh, I think Steve kind of notices that Charlie is a little freaked out and he kind of quells that fears by saying like, we'll go downtown together. Um, and then of course, you know, the notion that they can't escape or they can't get to downtown or the only people who can make it out of the, out of the neighborhood are aliens, um, kind of squashes that. But it's not so much that it's not so much that they they're like, well, we can't go because then that means that we that must mean we're aliens or anything, because it doesn't reach that point. It doesn't reach that point yet because then Les Goodman's car starts, and that kind of just it seems such a natural a natural way for them to just disregard going downtown because they're investigating that, and and in that way the confusion over what's happening just plays out so earnestly and feels so natural. And I, I don't know, the writing is absolutely phenomenal because Serling doesn't give us the opportunity or d- give the characters the opportunity to question whether or not Tommy's right. Uh, Tommy just brings up, Hey, these are the rules set out in this, um, in these sci-fi stories that I read. So you can't make it out of town. So Steve and Charlie and all the other adults, they're like, well, Let's hear you out. What what are you talking about? But by the time they can really, by the time they they take in all of that stuff, all of that information, it's not like they use that to decide they're not going to go downtown. It's that the car starts and then, and that just kind of pushes it out of their minds. It's it's so great because it could have been so goofy and and weird to have them just take this kid's word for it. But it the way that the kids words infiltrate their suspicious or or amplify their suspicions is so natural and and wonderfully written and i love it and in <laughs> the true the the true beauty of this episode is that i even i like i found myself wondering who the alien was in it um i became suspicious of them and and i think that's why it works so well um because there isn't some hidden villain uh, the group itself transforms into the villains of the episode. And that idea alone is absolutely terrifying. And it's something that I love seeing in, in, uh, fiction. It's, uh, in the, and it's something that's so difficult, <laughs> um, to write because you can't, you have these characters that are making these decisions that are to the detriment of the group at hand, but you have to write it in a way that makes it so that they can um, make these decisions in that makes sense in the con in the construct or in the context of the narrative that you're writing. And again, just the way that Serling writes it so, so organically is just absolutely incredible. And, and it, everything happens so organically and feels so authentic that it's, it's mind blowing. Um, so once, once Les's car starts on its own, that kind of changes everything. Um, that's the moment where the crowd kind of crosses the street and Steve warns them like, Hey, let's not, let's not be a mob. Um, because, and, and that makes, that makes perfect sense because, the car starting on its own freaked them out more and it transitioned the episode from being about this group, this group, um, being confused by this, this unexplained occurrence. And it, it transformed it into a story about mob mentality and group think. And, 
and it makes it makes sense in the context of this episode because they want answered they are they want answers and this unexplainable thing just completely shields their rationale and that's even what's what's even more beautiful about this is that less warns them that what they're starting is what they should be afraid of and like that's after he's been um basically put on trial for for this weird occurrence um and i just love that i love that that scene where less warns them that they're starting something uh that they should be afraid of it's it's the perfect scene for an act break and it's the perfect scene to transition the episode tonight and i just want to say really quickly that um before i get to the rest of the plot of this that I love the way that the entire, nearly the entire episode is all exteriors. Um, everyone's outside for it. There are, I think there are two shots in the entire episode that take place indoors. Um, one is just simply, uh, one of the women, uh, uh, lighting a candle. I think it, it might be Les's wife, um, lighting a candle. But there's the only other scene that's indoors is, um, one of the women trying to use the phone after after the power is cut. But even that scene, like that scene is shot from the doorway and it's really brief. It's just establishing that they can't use the phones. Um, and what I love about it is like we see one shot of her trying to get a hold of the operator and then we see her set down the phone and then she walks out and that's when we realize that it's being shot from the doorway, from from the outside. And I thought that, that was just beautiful. And the fact that it's all exterior, but it still feels incredibly claustrophobic and constrained is just another another nod to incredible, incredible writing and uh, really, really great directing in this episode as well. So once it gets to, you know, nighttime, uh, there's a scene where Charlie is he's drinking, I think, I think it's just a soda, but, um, he's, he's drinking and he's using this conspiratorial tone when he whispers about Les's night gazing. Um, and it, it kind of makes it seem like he's relishing this, uh, this interaction or this event because he wants to, he wants to get to the bottom of it. He wants to know what's really going on. And it kind of really does seem like he's just really enjoying the experience of, of this mystery. But, I don't think he is because I think it's more about his curiosity and this obsessive desire to be right. And it clouds his judgment so much of what's going on um, that instead of viewing things rationally and objectively, he's just letting his curiosity steer the narrative. And at one point he says that night gazing is acceptable under normal circumstances and that line just stuck out to me so much because again he's 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 shaping his perception of what's going on and he, or he's using he's letting his um he's letting his curiosity and his perspective of the situation uh guide the narrative of what's going on in his mind and like he says right there night gazing is acceptable but he gives himself the whole episode's about finding a scapegoat. And again, he finds, you know, says under normal circumstances. So he's accepting the fact that it's, that it's not a normal situation. 
and that's just amplifying amplifying his suspicions and it's haunting really that he and the the rest of the group can find suspicion in the most normal activities it comes up when steve uh, when steve's ham radio comes it comes into play and it's so everyone is so so sure that that these normal things are um indicators of malevolent things that it's i'm at a loss for words clearly but it's it's absolutely astounding it's it's really really well done and really um terrifying honestly because it makes you think like what in your life say you're say you're in a situation where someone is is um accusing you of something and this again goes into uh, the cold war, um, and, and, um, blacklisting and, and all that that was happening or that had happened in that Sterling was witness to, um, that, that came into the writing of this episode, but the most mundane activities, the most regular activities could be construed in a way that could, could show, could could cast you in a less than desirable light, and that that notion is absolutely terrifying. Um, the idea that you can't you can't defend yourself for something completely innocent is is one of the most terrifying things I can think of. Um, yeah, so I I thought that that was just him pointing out the night gazing um, being acceptable under normal circumstances was just was just really really something that stuck out, uh, stuck out to me. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but what makes the excellent, uh, escalation of craziness so effective to me in this episode is that it's not a surprise. Like I said, Les warns them. And then when Steve is kind of, uh, um, when, when, when the crowd goes after Steve, he warns them too. And what's so terrifying about it is that no one listens. Um, the warnings that Steve and Les uh, give the people about them, you know, getting some perspective on the situation or, or think about what they're doing. Uh, those warnings go completely, um, go completely ignored. And they're the last bastion of rationality before the entire group descends into complete chaos. And it makes it feel and this is such a bummer to say, but it makes it feel so real because that's how human beings act. And it's, it's such a tragic, such a sad and depressing thing to, to admit, but that is how humanity acts when faced with, um, of something that they can't explain or something that they don't, something that they fear greatly. And, the escalation of all this, the, like I said, the descent into chaos is just, is so, it, like it goes so far. It, it, it continues to rise and until it reaches just, um, a moment where they can't, that, uh, that's, that they can't take back. Um, I'm speaking about when once I'm talking about the scene where Charlie kills Pete and it's, it's incredible how quickly, how quickly he denies blame or, or that he denies that he was at fault for it. And like that, uh, it's so weird because, or it's so, it's so eerie rather because 
it's not like he's waking up from it. He, I mean, he's sort of waking up from it, but he's immediately defending his actions. He's saying that, um, um, how was he supposed to know that, that he was someone that they knew and, uh, what, like he's not, he's basically not at fault for it. And, and it's just, it's such a sad depiction of cowardice and it's played so well by Jack Weston as well. Like he, he performs it beautifully, but it's, it's a sad depiction of cowardice because he is not, he, in his mind, he's not at fault for it because he was defending the group. He was defending his home, but it's still, they're so far gone. He's so far gone from rational thought that he doesn't, he, it doesn't wake him up to realize that he, that this is something that was brought out of fear of the unknown or this irrational fear, um, that has kind of just bled into the entire group. And then, and then he ups it. Like he jumps up or, or he escalates it further because he immediately shifts the blame to the kid. Um, because it's clear that the group is going to attack him and the way that he shifts the blame to the kid is just remarkable to me. It's, it's like a primal reaction based solely on self-preservation. At that moment, I really, I really thought that this episode was going to end with them killing Tommy. I mean, it would have, it would have made sense in that context, but then, but then it goes to the route of them all going just absolutely mad and crazy and running around and, and then the, shot to reveal that they're being tested by aliens uh, after that. So I don't, just the, just the descent into chaos in this entire episode is just absolutely astounding. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful episode. And the reveal that they, that there are aliens that are just, um, that are, that are intentionally doing these things to them is, really, really great. I I mean, I love the, I love the ending that they're, that they're aliens that are just doing this, um, systematically throughout, throughout the country. It sounds like, um, throughout the world, probably. Um, they say that, they say that Maple Street isn't unique. It's, it's, it happens the same way. They mess with the electricity and then, and then they watch them destroy them, destroy each other. Um, and that happens one to the other, one to the other, one to the other. And, I mean, that is such a dark, dark ending or, or really kind of tragic ending because it is, that is the case. That's, I mean, that's, it seems real. Like it seems like a reflection of real life in the worst possible way. And Serling's closing narration is the perfect, perfect punctuation to it and the perfect example of him using the Twilight Zone as as a mirror to real world, to the real world and our nature as humans. And it's one of the most beautiful, beautiful endings, um, of the 22 twilight zone episodes I've seen, but, um, yeah. And really quickly, I just want to mention that I love Claude, uh, Aiken's performance in this episode. Um, he's such a commanding presence and his deep booming voice gives him, authority in his scenes, which makes his character losing, losing his grip on the rationality of the group. Like he's losing his 
command of the group, if you want to if you want to use that term, um, it makes it all the more effective. And it can uh, compare that to Jack Weston's performance as Charlie, as this uh, frightened, confused, cowardly person who becomes dangerous. Um, and those two performances, as well as all the other performances in, in the episode, um, they just counterbalance each other really well. And I personally, I, I kind of hope that at some point, I hope that there are more episodes to come featuring an ensemble group. Um, uh, cause I know that's usually one to three people in the scene or in the, or in the story interacting, which is great for the most part, but I, I just loved seeing this ensemble drama unfold in this episode. So having said my thoughts on the episode, I'm going to talk briefly about the cultural subtext of this episode or the cultural significance of it. Like I said, it came out of the cold war and, and the blacklist and McCarthyism. Uh, I was just so blown away by this episode because I came away from this episode thinking, could this be the most important twilight zone episode? Like it's something that I would want kids to see in schools because it's an absolutely terrifying depiction of groupthink and fear mongering and, uh, and just mob mentality ruled by fear and paranoia. And what's tragic and sad and really depressing about it is that it was a reaction to cold war McCarthyism, but it's still, it still resonates so much. I mean, this is, I mean, think back to the Salem witch trials, um, McCarthyism, the cold war, the blacklist, um, even recently nine 11 xenophobia. Um, it's sad that this mentality, this attitude, this, this pattern is completely cyclical in our culture and our, um, our nature and just, oh, it's, it's such an emotionally and, and beautifully, beautifully done episode. And Serling's closing narration is so spectacular. I'm just going to read it real quick here. Um, the tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices to be found only in the minds of men for the record, prejudices can kill and suspicion can destroy and a thoughtless frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own for the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the twilight zone. Absolutely incredible. So powerful, so succinct, so beautifully written and it's so on point to the message of this episode. It is the message of the episode and it is so astounding. I, I absolutely love it. And it's, it's something that resonates so much throughout. Um, even today it's, it's such a great, such a great episode. So trivia for this episode, I have a few things here. Um, time magazine named it one of the uh, 10 best twilight zone episodes and that's one of the things that kind of uh i agree wholeheartedly (laughs) with of the 22 that i've seen also of course the aliens are in the episode are uh, wearing uniforms that were from the 1956 science fiction film forbidden planet uh which 
the Twilight Zone used a lot of their uh, sets and, and wardrobe and all that um, throughout the throughout its run, or so I've heard. Um, also, a radio dramatization of this episode was produced in the mid-2000s as uh, part of the Twilight Zone radio series. It had Frank John Hughes as Steve Brand. Um, it was included in the Twilight Zone radio dramas, Collection 12. And also a graphic novel version was published by the Savannah College of Art and Design. And also a short story version was published in Stories from the Twilight Zone. Um, it ends differently, so I won't give away how it ends, um, according to this. Um, and it also served to be a major influence on science fiction in the decades that followed. Um, it A lot of films drew their inspiration from this episode, like uh, The Trigger Effect and The Mist, which I don't know if... I don't know if Stephen King... Um, had this as the uh, inspiration for uh, the missed short story or um, even the novel under the dome. It kind of feels very similar to that. So now we've come to my closing thoughts on the episode. And again, it's, it's an incredible episode. It's absolutely incredible. I cannot speak highly enough about this. And it's not just the best episode of the twilight zone that I've seen thus far. It's, Honestly, it's one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. And the fact that it's in season one, um, 22 episodes into a 156 episode run of the Twilight Zone is astounding to me and makes me really excited to continue this project, of course. Um, yeah, I, there's not much else I can say about it. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's such a great, great, great episode. And so, uh, before I get into my, uh, bonus review for this episode, uh, here's a highlight from episode 169 of the obsessive viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends, Mike and tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. What I love about it is that it's, it, it encompasses what Stephen King does best. It has this heat, Basically, by having a dome cover a city and cut it off from civilization, he does what he does best, and he creates this this play of macabre behavior that plays across an entire town's worth of characters. And it's so rich and so thrilling. It has some of the... There's one point in particular that is like the most horrific description of... Um, uh, violence that I've read from eh, that I've read from Stephen King with an asterisk next to it because I, you know that's that's kind of hyper, uh, hyperbolic. But the show didn't deliver; it didn't transfer those character traits to it. It made the most. You can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can find the episode that you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV169. So this week's bonus episode is The Maples Are on Maple... (laughs) I'm sorry. This week's bonus episode is The Monsters Are on Maple Street. It's episode 32 of uh, season one. I think it was only one season even of the Twilight Zone 20, uh, 2002 revival series uh, with Forrest Whitaker. Um, it aired on February 19th, uh, 
and it's available in its entirety on YouTube, as I said before. And right off the bat, um, <laughs> okay, first of all, there's really awkward music. It's kind of like a, this was in 2003, and it kind of sounds like late 90s um, poppy rock music um, that just, it just doesn't, it just didn't stick with me like the way that the idyllic music stuck with me in the original version. Um, and right off the bat, like it's, it's just a shot of a quiet street and then (laughs) Forrest Whitaker pops up like, like he's walking into frame and it's clear that he was in a studio with a, with a green screen behind him and they superimposed the, um, street scene behind him. It's, it's really out of place and awkward and just really, I don't know. It, it bothered me a lot. Um, and so I, I I don't want to spend this whole review, um, comparing it to the original because that's not fair because like I said, the original is one of the greatest, best television episodes I've ever seen. (laughs) But I want to just say that this episode starts off with a neighborhood meeting like a, like a neighborhood organization or whatever meeting. And they're talking about little things about their community, which, which is fine. I mean, that's a good, that's a good way to bring us into the story and the dynamic and showing that they're united as a community. But it's immediate, it's immediately clear that they, that not only do they not, um, uh, utilize, the exterior shots the way that the original episode did um, because this is all interior. They have a lot of interior scenes in this episode, which is fine, you know, whatever. But it's also extraordinarily clear that this episode is not going to have any subtlety to it at all. Um, And that's even, that's really even made clear by the episode title. Um, The title being the monsters are on Maple street and as opposed to the monsters are due on Maple Street, where there's a mystery about, you know, the monsters are coming. But here it's like, okay, the monsters are on Maple Street. It's them, which I guess in this context, it's, uh, could be, could be, um, uh, used to describe the, the mysterious neighbors that they're suspicious of. But anyway, regardless of that, um, one of the characters is played by Titus Welliver, um, who's currently on Bosch and he was, he was, uh, in the last couple seasons of, uh, lost one of my favorite shows. Um, anyway, uh, and he's in this, he is just a walking cliche. It's, it's really, it's really something. I mean, it's this 40 year old guy, drinking a beer at this neighborhood association meeting. He's wearing his high school letter jacket and complaining about wanting to go home and watch football. And it's just, it's just beating us over the head with like the, like with, uh, telling us, telling us what, how we should feel about this character. Like he's, he's kind of a, he's kind of a jerk and he's, he's this one archetype. And it's so, I, like I said, it's just beating us over the head with it. And then, and then in addition to that, when the light passes over the, over the neighborhood, there is just this jump of special effects that are just really over the top, overdone, glass shatters, and it's just, it's really, really, 
really just just lacks subtlety at all uh, in, entirely because of course that is immediately going to freak them out that's going to put them in in fear and everything it's not like oh there's this light that passed over that could have been a meteorite like in the original like that the brilliance of serling's work in the original story was that it slowly built up the tension and the and the fear and the mob mentality this is just like hey let's blow some stuff up and you know have the characters suspect uh, the neighbors. And that's another thing. They, they don't, it's not that they're, they're shifting blame or shifting, um, their, their fear to other characters. It's, there's one house on the, in the neighborhood where they, where the inhabitants don't interact with any of the other neighbors. So they immediately assume that they must be terrorists. It's, it's obviously this was made in 2003 and I'll get to that in a moment, but, um, it's very much grounded in that, uh, post 9-11 fear um, story. And also just as an aside as well, um, the 2002 Twilight Zone theme music, really don't like it. It's this weird like kind of metal rock anthem and I it, it rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and then just after, after the opening credits, like the kid in the scene uh, he's like, he doesn't do the speech like, like Tommy does where he talks about how, Oh, the, the aliens are coming because they don't, they're not thinking that it's aliens in this, in this show. So, I mean, it's not, I mean, it makes sense, but there, <laughs> the kid does reference independence day. Um, but he says like, uh, he says something and he's like, Oh, it's just like an ID four. And I'm like, this kid is maybe what? 13, 14. This is 2003. Independence Day came out in what, 95, 96? It's just, it's kind of weird. It, it felt like that. It felt like, it felt so out of touch. Like, it felt like the writers were so out of touch. Like, oh, yeah, this, this, this 13-year-old kid is going to reference Independence Day. And it's cool for them to reference it as ID4, um, despite the fact that this kid was maybe, what, six when it came out? I can't math. Um, <laughs> uh there are four, maybe, I don't know, uh, 13, 90, or he was like six. Um, anyway, I don't know. Just that line just felt so out of touch. Like, like they didn't know it just felt so out of touch. Um, and so, like I said, that they're, like I said before, there's a mix of interior and exterior scenes, which is fine. They don't need to completely remake the original, especially when they're updating it for a modern a modern time in the modern, uh, cultural zeitgeist or what have you. Um, but the interior scenes just work against the show so much because, um, it's supposed to be a sense of intimacy between some characters talking about what they should do next and how they should handle it. But I couldn't help but think that the scenes in indoors looked so, cheap and kind of, uh, kind of, kind of looked like softcore porn. It was, it was like that kind of lighting and, and weird, uh, fakeness that it just, it, it was laughable to me. And, uh, also another thing that bugged me about this episode was that it's strangely action heavy. Um, Andrew McCarthy and Titus Welliver, the two leads, 
kind of the Steve and and uh, Charlie of the of the group. And Andrew McCarthy in the episode gets a gun in, shoved in his face. Um, Titus Welliver lunges at him with a broken beer bottle, and it's just really annoying. It comes across as being really like, oh, let's make this exciting, let's make this fun, or or let's make this intense with the most um uh with the most cliched types of tension that we can come up with let's completely disregard disregard the idea set in place by the original and let's make this an all out like really um testosterone driven um just action heavy thing and it does not work at all and the central story of it the central um uh, the, the impetus of the, of the fear in this, in this episode is that there's, like I said, there's, there are neighbors who they've like built a fence and they, they don't talk to anyone. And it's really, it really, uh, I don't know. I guess I, it makes sense. I understand why or how the story could be repurposed into a post nine 11 story. And I honestly think that with the right talent involved, it could have been done reasonably well. Um, even though I think that, that the timelessness of uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street, that, I mean, like I said, that'll resonate even today. And so it doesn't, there's no need for it to be remade. But I think with the right talent to repurpose it to a post 9 11 story, I think it could work quite well. But this was just a complete misfire because from the outset, they immediately suspect the neighbors and that just takes away that gives that gives them a central antagonist to um to lunge toward and it just it tears away or it completely negates any of the interpersonal um conflict that came that came up in the original and it just it's just made it lack so much and um the ending of the episode is is different from the original um it isn't aliens that are messing with them or anything um and i came away from it thinking that i like i came away from it not knowing if this ending was making a statement of its own or if it was just going for shock value um i would think that there is some statement to be made in it but judging from the rest of the episode and how it was put together, this might be really, really harsh, but I think that would be giving them too much credit because it seems like, oh, let's just do it this way instead of that other way because that will be, that will be clever or that will be, well, that'll be clever and it won't um, tarnish the original or anything. And it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it seems so lackluster the entire episode was just so lackluster to me and it was just it was a bummer to see it and i thought about getting the 2002 twilight zone series on dvd just just as a completionist i have the original series i have the 1990 uh, or 1985 series might as well get the 2002 series now i am not sure that i would that i would like to uh spend money on that um but again like I said, guys, if you want to, uh, if you want to, you can donate money to <laughs> anthology at anthologypod.com and maybe that'll, maybe I can buy it with your guys' money, but, um, uh, don't, don't donate for that purpose, guys, <laughs> because that would be, 
disastrous. I did actually find the 2002 Twilight Zone DVD at half price books, but I didn't buy it. I think it was like 10 bucks. But um, anyway, yeah, that, I mean, that's all I've got for the 2002 episode of the Twilight Zone that remade the Monsters Do on Maple Street. Um, yeah, like I said, it's on YouTube if you want to see it for curiosity's sake, but just watch the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street again. Like I said, that is, I've been just speaking so highly about it for the last several weeks. It's such a great, great, great episode, and I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, so that about does it for this week's episode. It's a little bit longer than I expected, and I apologize for that, but I, like I said, I had a lot of email, emails to read. Um, which I love. Obviously, get in touch with me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Uh, next time, I might do a separate mailbag episode um, since I'll hopefully be doing a three-episode recording session next weekend. We'll see. Um, but the next episode of the podcast will be uh, covering episode 23 of The Twilight Zone's first season. It's a world of difference. And um, also, uh, uh, the bonus review will be actually be The Last Man on Earth. Uh, starring Vincent Price. So look forward to that, Brandon, and everyone else who listens to Anthology. And thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at anthologypod.com and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com you can also tweet me at Obsessive Viewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out The Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.